Thanks for joining. This is the Tax Policy Podcast from Global Business Alliance. My name is Aaron Taylor, the Senior Director for Tax and Trade. Today we have joining us Chris Hanna, who is serving at uh, of counsel at Baker McKinsey. And he's also a full-time professor at Southern Methodist University of Tax Policy and has been there for how long, Chris? 32 years now. 32 years. Congratulations. Well, Thanks. thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Chris and I have known each other for a long time, which we will get into in a little bit. First, perhaps we can just uh, explore, Chris, y- your world of tax and how you first got into tax in the first place. Sure. When I was in law school, I took my tax courses, really enjoyed them a lot. And then I became a research assistant for one of the most well-known tax law professors in the country, uh, Steve Lind. Uh, who's a professor at the University of Florida Law School and also at uh, Hastings College of Law. And uh, I really enjoyed being his research assistant. After I graduated from uh, law school, I then got my uh, master's of law and tax at uh, NYU and then went to work for a large Washington, D.C. law firm of uh, Steptoe & Johnson. And uh, after being there not not a very long time, uh, I was approached by SMU to become a law professor here at SMU, teaching tax law courses there. And that was in 1990. And... uh, I've been at SMU Law School, I've done visits at a number of schools, but been at SMU Law School since 1990. I've uh, done a couple of stints in government, 2000 to 2006. I was working kind of in residence at the Joint Committee on Taxation. And then I think what you might be heading towards here and where we met each other from 2011 to 2018, I was a senior policy advisor for tax reform at the Senate Finance Committee. Yep, yep, that's right. So I, I joined the Senate Finance Committee back in 2011. Mark Prater was chief tax counsel then, uh, Senator Hatch taking over as the minority ranking member from uh, Chairman Grassley at the time, who was moving on. Yeah, so, so we've had almost, a do- I guess, a dozen years almost now, a decade or so, uh, know each other. So tell me more about your experience. Why did you, you had already done JCT, why did you decide you wanted another round of federal government uh, tax stimulus? <laughs> Uh, I really enjoyed the government service, and so I was at JCT, worked on the American Jobs Creation Act of 2004, one of the one of the principal drafters, along with several others, of the Enron report that, that came out there on kind of the tax practices of Enron. And so I really enjoyed the government service. And then at, uh, toward the end of 2010, uh, Mark Prater, and uh, along with Chris Campbell, you remember as our staff director, uh, reached out to me about uh, coming on board. Uh, on their staff, the Senate Finance Committee, to work on tax reform. And they thought at the time that 2013, the stars were lining up, and 2013 would be a year where tax reform could happen. It could happen in 2013. This was at the end of 2010. And my response is, I'd love to do it, except that I've got a full-time job. It's in Dallas, unfortunately. And so uh, there's just no way I could do this. I said, but what I can respond is maybe during the summer, starting around May of 2011, I could start flying up to D.C. and uh, kind of working uh, with the staff there being May of 2011. And much to my surprise, I said, fine, we'll take that. I did not expect that. Uh, so then I had to go tell my wife that starting in May, I'm going to be working up in Washington, D.C. And so that's how I got started. Then at the end of the summer, uh, we worked out an arrangement where I would uh, teach my courses on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday mornings. And then Wednesday afternoon, I'd fly up to Washington uh, every week and then come home during the weekends. So the second half of the week, I'd work on in D.C. and uh, at the Senate Finance Committee and did that for eight years. Yeah, it was really a, a marvelous experience to be able to, uh, A, certainly learn from you, 
um, and really kind of tee up tax reform. If I recall, in 2011, 2012, 2013, we really, I think we went through almost 30 or 40 different hearings exploring a number of areas of the tax code with uh, Chairman Baucus as chair. Um, and we had so many different meetings with corporations, um, tax directors, CFOs, really making the case that inversions were going to continue to occur unless unless the tax code was reformed. And uh, yeah, you were certainly an integral part of that. So let, let me turn now to uh, one particular provision that has been of interest a lot over the past year, and particularly this year, and that's the uh, EBITDA uh, provision, uh, which is now just down to EBIT as of January 1. Um, so for those listening, I and Taylor left the uh, Center Finance team 2014. Uh, Chris Hanna, you were there through tax reform and left in 2018. Is that right? The, at the end of 2018, that's right. So uh, perhaps for our listeners, can you just give some history as to how this EBITDA provision came about? What prompted its creation and what was what was the real purpose behind it? Sure. When I started working with the Senate Finance Committee in May of 2011, you and our colleagues there on the staff, there was already this idea of limiting um, interest deduction for businesses. And the idea of what became 163J really, uh, at least from my experience, came from Germany. Germany had a provision like this, what became 163J, basically limiting kind of business interest deduction to 30% of EBITDA. And kind of looked at the German system, tax system there, and I remember meeting with German uh, tax practitioners who came here to the U.S., meeting with them in person and and talking to them and saying, explain to me exactly how this provision works. I can read it here, uh, but exactly how this works. And I remember in these meetings kind of looking at that uh, as we were kind of looking at doing something like that. And this was early on. So a lot of people think that kind of 163J came out of the BEPS Action 4, where they had the limitation on interest deductions there. This was before BEPS started, uh, which I believe was 2013. This was before all of that. So there was, this was early on in the process, this idea of kind of what became 163J. You know, at the time, the corporate rate was 35%. Congress was really discussing going down to 20%, which was going to cost quite a bit in terms of tax revenue to the United States Treasury. So, you know, it was really about broadening the base, lower the rate. That was the uh, talk of the town. And I, I recall it was quite quite a list to come up with a number of items that would really broaden the base. And I'm, do you recall what this uh, ended up uh, raising toward that effort? Yeah, well, as part of TCJA, the score came in at $253.4 billion over 10 years. So it's what we would consider, it was a big number. Right? It was a big number there in terms of how much it would raise there. I will say that as we were looking at this early on, Aaron, you would, you'll recall this, our staff, we were looking at corporate integration very, very heavily there. And so rather than limiting the interest deduction, we were lo- looking at the same time but also looking at maybe trying to give corporation a deduction for dividends, right? To try and equalize the tax treatment of debt and equity there. So we would have preferred, rather than trying to limit the interest deduction there, why don't we allow a deduction for dividends there? And so we were trying to follow along that path there. John Talisman, formerly Treasury, had written an article in tax notes there saying, don't do this on the interest deduction, don't limit the interest deduction there. And we looked at that article, but unfortunately, 
or, you know, the integration proposal that we were pursuing, allowing corporation deduction for dividends there, didn't make it uh, into TCJA. It was something we were looking at all the way until the very end there. There was, I think, less of a maybe a, a need for the deduction for dividends there when the corporate rate went down to as low as it did. And I know we've been thinking that uh, some of us have been thinking if the corporate rate starts to creep back up again, that maybe the idea of looking at allowing corporate integration deduction for dividends may become very important again. So going back a little bit, you mentioned about $250 billion over 10 years. So if I recall, the, the Joint Committee on Taxation basically said for every 100 basis points, for every one percentage point in the corporate rate, it was going to cost approximately $100 billion. So we're talking about basically two and a half points. So let's dig a little bit deeper on, on, on the particular policy of shifting from EBITDA to EBIT. Did that come about later in, in your discussions with other members or as, as, as staff on committee? All right. So the budget reconciliation instructions we had is we had a $1.5 trillion tax cut. And as we were getting toward the end of developing TCJA, the numbers were coming in. It was going to be very, very close there on the numbers there. So we were looking for revenue, all right? And so as you, you can see there, a lot of the individual provisions became temporary provisions there. Um, so the revenue, it, it was going to be very, very close trying to meet that $1.5 trillion target there. And this was suggested to us late in the process there that if you do a shift, the base from an EBITDA base to an EBIT base there, you know, that'll pick up revenue for you, all right, which we were looking for there. And there, the, and there was what was suggested to us is there's no magic to an EBITDA base versus an EBIT base there. And right? so you could use an EBIT base. And so that was decided to go ahead to do that. Really, it was revenue. And do you recall, was there any uh, comparison to other countries have, have at the time where other countries using an EBIT base instead of an EBITDA base? You know, when we did this, uh, looked at this a, a while back, it appeared that the countries around the world were using an EBITDA base, at least the ones that we were looking at were using an EBITDA base as opposed to an EBIT base. Gotcha. Okay, excellent. So going from kind of that revenue and that, that need for revenue to hit that $1.5 trillion target, what circumstances followed? I mean, were there any additional questions or, or pushback from members or staff on this particular provision? Uh, before it was passed, and then we can get into since TCGA has passed. Immediately after TCGA was enacted, uh, did get a member office contacted me and just basically asked me the question you were just asking, why was this done? Why was EBITDA switching to an EBIT base in 2022? Why was that done? And I explained basically what I just said, and they, and they said, thank you. And so there was an inquiry there, right? Um, as to as to why it was done. Yeah, and fast forward four years, and I think you know a lot of staff on the Hill and even members certainly thought that this would be fixed prior to year end, as did many in uh, corporate America, um, both domestic and international. Um, and so I think we're some are surprised to see where we are now. Two months past, effectively two months past, uh, January 1, 2022, and now everyone's lobbying for this proposal that everyone thought would never actually become law, but here we are. So four years after the bill has been passed, uh, corporate revenues are higher than they have ever been, according to you know, recent reports from the Treasury. How do you see the policy 
assuming no change, impacting companies going forward, particularly those with foreign direct investment? Well, in terms of the impact, it will have an impact here. And as you noted, corporate tax revenues, we saw those numbers came in last this past October there at $371.8 billion in corporate tax revenues for the most recent fiscal year, which on a gross basis, I believe is the highest in history. And as a percentage of GDP, about 1.65% of GDP, and just to give you an idea, I've used 2016 as an example, it was 1.63% of GDP in 2016. So corporate tax revenues as a percentage of GDP, about where they were pre-TCJA. And of course, on a gross basis, you know, looking to be the highest ever there. So, right, they are up there. In terms of the impact, well, we did see kind of the concern that companies had there when the proposed regulations under 163J came out and said that depreciation capitalized into inventory couldn't be added back in determining adjusted taxable income. And there was a lot of effort there to try and get Treasury maybe to make the change there before the final regs came out there where depreciation capitalized into inventory could be added back. And the argument, with at least for companies that were affected by that, is they were already in an EBIT base at that time, you know, prior to 2022, and this was a negatively uh, impacting them. And so Treasury, and this was something that I had actually uh, mentioned and got some pushback from, but I had mentioned that you know maybe one way of trying to do that was the language of the statute uses the word allowable for depreciation. Well, depreciation capitalized into inventory make the argument that it's still an allowable deduction, but it's not allowed. And the statute used the word allowable. And I noticed the Treasury, when they issued those final regulations in July of 2020 there, in the preamble said they focused in on that language of allowed versus allowable there, and said, yeah, we will focus in on that and therefore allow those depreciation deductions, capitalized in inventory to be added back there. And so in essence, creating that uh, EBITDA base because the companies affected by that were saying we're already subject to an EBIT base if you don't do that. And there were a number of companies that were adversely impacted by that. So I, I do think it is a concern. Yep, yep. No, I, I've certainly heard from a handful of companies, and, and that history on those regulations I think is fascinating and will be fascinating for uh, our listeners. So as I've had conversation with different tax directors, you know, I, I think the question that is still kind of outstanding in my mind is really in terms of timing, um, we'll get into a little bit more on the legislative side going forward, but do you think uh, tax directors, um, you know, CFOs, is this something that will be hitting their books immediately? Is it going to be on a quarter by quarter basis, on an annual basis? Is this something they're going to be needing to take into account effectively, you know, this year for first and second quarter? Or is it really going to be something that is going to shift their thinking going to 2023? Well, one thing I can in response to this is when we when we drafted 163J, we had an unlimited carry forward period, all right, for the interest deduction that was disallowed for the current year. And the thinking was, is that it was just a temporary difference. And so by not being a permanent difference there, it wouldn't hit the effective tax rate. And it was purposely structured that way with this unlimited carry forward period. But, and Tax Notes had reported this a little while back, there are a number of companies, I know, I know of some, who had to set up a valuation allowance there. And so by setting up that valuation allowance there, it does hit their effective tax rate. And so it did have that effect. I, I think when we drafted it, we weren't thinking that that was probably gonna happen or if it happened very, very little, but it, it, it has impacted companies. And I know companies have set up a valuation allowance there on that interest carry forward. So in terms of you talking about hitting their books. 
so interesting. So tell me more on the valuation allowance for, for companies that haven't done that. How and how does that work and why would they do that? Yeah, basically the idea is is that uh, that interest carry forward that you're not going to be able to utilize that interest deduction in a future year. All right. So so by not being able to utilize it, even with an unlimited carry forward period, by not being allowed to utilize that interest deduction then they maybe have to set up this valuation allowance against that interest deduction there, showing that they don't think they're going to be able to use it. More specific, setting up the valuation allowance against the deferred tax asset, would be the specific, created by the interest deduction carry forward. At the current moment, we have two bills introduced on this in this current congressional session. One in the Senate introduced by Roy Blunt from Missouri, who's retiring, uh, S number 1077. Um, and one in the House, H.R. 5371, introduced by Congressman Morelli from New York, and Adrian Smith from one of my home states, Nebraska, uh, to deal with this issue. I, you know, both bills, I believe, have, have the exact same language. The Senate bill has a few co-sponsors. The House bill, last I checked, didn't have any, but it was, you know, just introduced last fall. How do you see the prospects for this playing out? Um, I know you continue to have discussions with either former staff or some current staff on the Hill. Um, how do you see things playing out for the year going forward in terms of getting either of these bills attached to a future vehicle? Well, we can kind of see what's happened so far, as you, as you noted, these two bills here. So the Senator Blunt's bill, the last I looked, as you noted, it looked like there were four co-sponsors uh, on that bill, and they were all Republicans. All right. So usually you'd like to see you know, kind of bipartisan uh, bill like that to have a Better, better chance. Now, the bill in the House there is Representative Smith, a Republican, and then Representative Morelli, a Democrat there. So that, in my opinion, makes it look good. Uh, it makes it look good there to be able to have kind of bipartisan support for this change. What we saw is it, it's interesting. There seems to be, uh, when you get into a discussion of this 163J and what's happened with the base there, a lot of times that discussion also is uh, joined with the R&D amortization provision, which also amortization came in in 2022. And you'll see a lot of times the discussions, both of these kind of together there. We see a lot of discussion and movement uh, with respect to R&D amortization, preventing the amortization going back to expensing, which is what we had prior to this year there. So, for example, in the Build Back Better Act, we saw a four-year delay there in the R&D amortization there. Whereas in the Build Back Better Act, with respect to 163J, the, the one change that we see there in Build Back Better is to apply 163J at the partner level rather than at the partnership level. So as we know, 163J as enacted there applies at the corporate level and at the partnership level that gross receipts greater than $25 million. So targeting large corporations and large partnerships was the idea. I always felt that that was one big mistake in Blame, blame myself on that one there, applying it at the partnership level. I felt like that was a mistake. It should apply at the partner level there. And so in Build Back Better Act, see that uh, changing its application from the partnership level to the partner level, I think that's actually a very good change um, that would be made to 163J, but it's still there. And the, the EBIT base is still there, at least in the Build Back Better Act. So we didn't see any kind of movement there as part of Build Back Better to prevent that change from EBITDA to EBIT. Well, and you're you're keying me up uh, nicely for some of the work we've been doing. So specifically on, on that Senate bill, uh, GBA actually just hosted a meeting uh, with some Democrat uh, offices. Uh, we'll have more in the future where we'll, we are constantly working to find additional Democrat co-sponsors for this particular bill and see if we can attach it to some other vehicles. 
I'll in part, I guess, answer some of my prior question and just chime in and say that there has been some discussion on a full year omnibus that this could potentially ride on. I know Republicans have been demanding that this package be one of their top asks. It seems that the 174 deduction, as you were mentioning, Chris, seems to have a little bit more legs. Uh, there's been more discussion around that. EBITDA and EBIT seem to be more of a wonky topic, and that's why GBA is working so hard having both House and Senate meetings uh, to educate staffers on this particular issue. Let me tee up this last question. Do you think we will see a potential permanent fix on this? I think the latest score I, I, I saw from the Joint Committee on Taxation was about $80 billion to make this permanent over 10 years, or if it becomes a one-year fix, it's about $6.5 billion, $6.5 billion. So it could become uh, another extender, which I'm sure the business community would not be excited about. And I don't think Congress would be either, candidly. Uh, but uh, we'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's uh, tough. As as you noted, there hasn't been as much movement on this one. And as I said, the with the R&D one, the R, and the R&D one, at least in the Build Back Better Act, that one only scored at $4 billion over 10 years from that uh, four-year four pushback for the R&D uh, amortization and uh, going, back, going back to expensing there, pushing it back by four years. So that, that's a fairly low dollar amount there. Yeah, that's it's going to be hard to say. Um, so far, we haven't really seen. Again, you've noted a couple of bills out there. The House one is is bipartisan, so I think that one looks good here. It's hard to say you know, how much traction this is going to get and whether there could be a permanent fix to this. I will tell you one of the things when we enacted 163J is we did look at with the EBITDA base in 30% of EBITDA what would happen if you went to you know, 20% or 10% there. And there was a concern about trying to minimize the impact of 163J. There was a concern that it may be overreaching there. And so that might be happening here with the EBIT, EBIT base there of a bit of overreach there in terms of its application. Well, I can certainly say it from discussions I've had on the Hill, you know, no staffer or candidly their member is defending EBIT is saying EBIT's the, the right approach. I think everyone knows that EBITDA is the right policy. It's just a question of what does it cost? There's certainly, to some degree, a little bit of blame saying, well, Republicans did this. And, you know, the, our response is, well, hey, you know, it was part of Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but that doesn't mean it can't be fixed. Uh, and we certainly would appreciate your support in doing so. So, uh, yeah, I think that that does remain to be seen whether it becomes a, a permanent fix or or a a short extender for the next few years. In the uh, OECD BEPS Action 4 report there, they get into, they do mention EBIT in the report. So, it, you know, some people said, you know, nobody uses EBIT for anything. It's never even discussed. It is mentioned there in the report. And maybe there's a, a line of thinking that is if, if you're using 30% of EBITDA, but you're moving to an EBIT base there, maybe you should, if you can't go back to the EBITDA base, Maybe you should change the percentage so it's not 30% anymore. Make it a different percentage there. All right. As I said, we did, when we enacted it, try to have a certain impact that it would have on companies there and not kind of overreach in terms of its impact on companies. Yeah. No, and that would certainly be interesting to see some additional scores on that. And perhaps that's something we can ask a member of Congress to, to request. Since we're now under an EBIT standard, if we went up to 40% or 50%, what type of a score would that look like going forward? Well, I, I think we're uh, hitting our 30-minute mark. So, 
Chris, we want to thank you so much for joining. Thank you for diving in on this topic on the EBITDA and EBIT and just providing some history for our listeners. And we encourage our listeners to you know, reach out, ask some additional questions, and uh, perhaps we'll have a follow-up session as things develop. So thank you, Chris Hanna, so much. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Thanks, everyone.